I am realizing that the more vulnerable I am and the more honest I am in public, the more my clients trust me to photograph them in hard situations, in frustrating situations, in houses that look like a bomb blew up in the toy chest, that it is helping other people out there, especially women who feel all of this pressure to be perfect, that the more I'm open and vulnerable and the more open and vulnerable the pictures are that I share, in a way it's creating this environment that is allowing women to accept that they are just as good the way they are and they don't have to pretend to be anything else. everyone, my name is Michael Howard, and welcome to the Musea Podcast. Just so you know, this episode has a little bit of swearing in it. All right, thanks. My name is Kirsten Lewis. I am a photographer based in Denver, Colorado. However, the majority of my work is out of the state or out of the country, and I specialize in documentary family photography, specifically day-in-the-life sessions. So my folks, my mom, my stepdad are photographers. I grew up with a dark room in the house. From basically age two up, we always had a dark room. So I learned at a very young age the process of making photos and printing them, but I had no interest in shooting. And I was in the fine arts. I did the fine arts all the way through high school. Very typical story where my mom begged me not to be a starving artist. <laughs> so I did not pursue a major in art or go to art school. However, I did always take at least two art classes every semester. So I ended up with a minor in the fine arts. It started with me studying in Brazil for a semester, a summer semester. And I just had a point and shoot with me. And when I got back, my mom said, whoa, your compositions are fairly good. You compose in the camera like you do on a canvas. And then that following year, my parents bought me my first SLR, which was a Nikon 8008. And then it's this similar story of many out there. Friends know that you shoot or that you're learning photography. And then I shot a wedding for friends in Jamaica for free in exchange for having them pay for me to get out there. And then people saw those photos and people saw those photos and yada, yada, yada. Back in the day, we did not have the means of the internet or social media <laughs> to get our work out there. So I, like many others before me, had to deal with carrying around a printed portfolio and actually, might I say, had to have one-on-one -on -one interviews all the time with potential clients. And But it was never my intention. If I was going to be anything, it was going to be a fine artist, right? Or a, a fine art mm -hmm. photographer. I really, this kind of just happened as the story of many, so... Yeah. How did you get into families specifically? And it sounds like since you tried the wedding thing at the beginning, did you like that, hate it? Or when did you divert to families more? I've shot about 500 weddings. <laughs> wow. So I, I did it for a long time. So I shot my first wedding in 2002. Mm -hmm. I'd have to check with them what anniversary we're on now. <laughs> Somewhere around there. And then I moved to the Outer Banks, North Carolina in 2006. And so a long time ago, yeah. I moved my business to the Outer Banks, North Carolina from Richmond, Virginia in season. And I was shooting a lot of weddings and I was so bored because it's the same beach wedding over and over again. I was so sick of seeing shells 
on wedding cakes and having to photograph the sand ceremony, which I think is the stupidest thing ever. <laughs> I became very <laughs> negative towards wedding. Although I loved my clients. Here's yeah. the thing. I love my clients. Right. I love the moments I shot. I hated everything else about it. Everything else. Yeah. And kind of like the disgruntled waitress that's been working too long at the same bar. That is what was happening <laughs> right. to me. Yeah. But the reason I went to the Outer Banks is because I met someone whose friend who I met was photographing beach portraits, family beach portraits there on the island. And they said that they were making like $40,000 in eight weeks time. And I was like, what? I can do that. So that's why I went to the Outer Banks. And I just ended up moving my wedding business down there Mm -hmm. because it's such a good place financially for photographers. The Outer Banks, I think, is the second busiest destination wedding spot in the U.S. One being Florida, I think. And then I think the Outer Banks, North Carolina is second. So there's a lot of opportunity to shoot in a small, so you make a crap ton of money in a small period of time, but then you basically have your winters off. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the case with most wedding photographers, depending on where you live, right? You have a high season, a low season. It's just like an insane season there. So I was like, well, I'll do that. And then I like looked into what beach portraits meant. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm not doing that (laughs) because it's all like the matching khaki and white Mm -hmm. or my more favorite would be the Canadian tuxedo of jean and jean. That's always really attractive. (laughs) Like the white shirts with the jeans on the beach. Like there was never a point in my entire life. My grandma just passed away, but there was never a point in my whole life where I would have ever desired to wear the same outfit as her ever. And like, so I can't wrap my brain around a whole family wearing the same outfit and getting their pictures made. Mm -hmm. So I had just finished doing my first run as a student at foundation workshop, which was, I learned all about photojournalism and real life storytelling. And I had been a photojournalist for a magazine in Richmond for years. So I was like, well, I'm, it's basically what I'm doing at weddings. I'm just approaching it as a documentary assignment, not as a photo shoot, I'm going to do the same thing on the beach. And no one was doing that. So to answer your question, that's how that happened. I just went there to make a lot of money and then realized aesthetically and artistically, it was so against everything I believed in photographically. So I just decided, well, why can't I just do my own thing? There's got to be clients that want it. So that's what I did. I started shooting one hour sessions that was 10 minutes of pose photos, but no one was allowed to wear the same outfits. And if they did, even after three times of telling them throughout the booking process, you cannot wear matching outfits. If they did, I immediately would get really irritated when I would show up at the shoot. Like, I think it was visually obvious that I was super disappointed, but then the last 50 minutes was only play on the beach. And I did that successfully for seven years at the beach. I shot, around 500 families in seven years, Mm. but it was slow. First year, I only got like 10 families hire me. And it was always out of the box families, especially in the beginning. I had a lot of same sex families, uh, families from out of the country, single parents, those kind of the more out of the box families were hiring me in the beginning because it was hard at first to get momentum. But once I was being referred everywhere, I had to turn people away. The last year I did it full time living there I photographed 97 families in 12 weeks, which was really insane. 
for me. Yeah. So that's how that happened. That's how the family thing happened. And then, and then, you know, moving away from the beach and transitioning to longer sessions to approaching it even more like a documentary assignment that just the progression and transition happened over time. I didn't just decide one day I was going to do it. And then all of a sudden I was successful. It took a really long time for that to happen. Mm, Yeah. I don't know how much you know about Musea, but uh, we do printing here. Right. So we see everything. (laughs) And so we see a lot, obviously, of more posed things. Yeah. We do have some documentary family photographers that come through, but, you know, the ratio is not as high. So I guess for you, we'll start maybe a big picture and get a little bit down into some specifics with you. It's just like, as an overview of the industry, do you feel like this is something that's really expanding into the family market? Over the past, let's say five years? Not five, more like three. Okay. Yes, I do. And I see what is going to happen. This is my prediction is what happened to the wedding industry is exactly what's going to happen to the family industry. You know, even when I first started shooting weddings, which would have been, I think I was 22 when I shot my first wedding and I'm 40 now. So 18 years ago, like I said, there was no internet, there's no social media, there was I mean, there was internet, but not everyone had websites for one. Mm-hmm. And we definitely weren't using the internet to book work at that point. Not very much. And it was expensive to get websites built and all that. Traditional wedding photography was still the norm, right? Like that was still what the majority of wedding photographers were shooting. And I cannot remember this gentleman's name for the life of me now, but he had worked in the Outer Banks for a while and I had seen his website with his work and I was like, holy crap, you can do this? Well, this is what I want to do. Pretty much it's the photographer that photographed JFK Jr.'s wedding. Once those photos were released, in my opinion, the industry pivoted in terms of wedding work, commercial work, and really just moments being the primary focus for the photographer and no longer demanding that your client's be at your beck and call all day long, which is what more of the traditional wedding photography was. So it took a long time. I feel like it took like 10 to 15 years for that transition to happen. But now the majority of wedding photographers are those where there is some portraiture, but the majority of the time that they spend in the wedding, they are not interfering with what's happening. They're just documenting the day as it unfolds. I think that that is going to happen with family photography as well. We will see less and less people wanting the traditional and more and more wanting real life. It's just, it takes time for that to happen, but I do see the momentum going that way. And especially seeing a lot of wedding photographers getting burnt out or seeing the potential financially with turning your wedding clients into family clients and wedding photographers that do approach it more documentary in nature. They had never considered family photography before because they didn't like how traditional it was. But now that they see that they can shoot families the same way, I see more and more wedding photographers going that direction as well, or at least reaching out to me. Mm. I mean, with your work, I look at it and it seems like you obviously really are not afraid to show kind of the raw, messy, real life of people. Yes. Do you feel like that is something that's going to become more popular, I guess, would be the phrase, but I feel like a lot of people are going to maybe loosen up on, you know, the posy stuff. It's still going to be like pretty editorially, like, you know, it's kind of a lifestyle thing, but I feel like a lot of photographers are really scared to push into the messiness the way you do. Yes. So the industry I think is really going lifestyle, right? Like that's where we are now. The majority of the shoots are lifestyle. They are 
really beautiful portraits in good moments, but almost perfect, right? Like the perfect light and the moms look perfect. And there's probably some primping that happens. It's still really good moments. It's real moments, but it's in a more stylized or controlled setting, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what I consider the lifestyle stuff versus the documentary approach to it, which is there is no structure. There is no correcting the imperfect there is on the photographer's part looking for working with the most amazing light but not controlling your subjects going in and out of it that is something that you have to be patient and wait for and i was never a pretty photographer ever i'm not a pretty girl either like i I didn't dress up in pretty clothes i just gave my grandmother's eulogy and (laughs) in her church and was reminded of how much i hated going there with my grandmother making me wear the really pretty, pretty dresses. I hated it, but I've always been drawn to beautiful. Mm. And so I think of lifestyle as pretty, but that the raw and real is actually more beautiful. That's how I see the difference. And there is nothing wrong with how pretty lifestyle photography is at all. It's just two different approaches. Mm. Here's the thing. Like if we're going to go a little bit deeper yeah. and I've been talking about this and thinking about this and, a lot because I'm transitioning from speaking at photography conferences to using my pictures to help with motivational and corporate speaking that with non photographers. And I've been identifying for a while through teaching specifically because the majority of my students are women and there is a huge confidence issue with females in general. And I a hundred percent place blame on the pressures of society and how the media portrays that and plays that. I mean, there's other things too, but there is a serious issue with women feeling the need to be perfect, to be everything, to run the perfect household, to have the perfect children, to never make a, can I swear? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) To never make a fucking mistake ever. Right. Yeah. And like, Everything should appear like you have all your shit together. And now that I am a parent, I realize that is never going to happen. Like I am (laughs) never going to have my shit together ever. Yeah. And I'm realizing how much more important my work is Mm. right now. My work is very important for my clients for sure. Like for these pictures I'm making for these people in them, especially the children, to be able to look back on these when they're adults and really see the relationships they had with their siblings and their parents, and then somehow finally be able to relate to their parents, right? Because you can as a kid, because they seem immortal, right? They seem like they know everything, and then you become an adult and you're like, you don't fucking know anything, right? So <laughs> I think it's important on many levels, and also it's important for me to make photos for my moms and dads, because I think that, and I definitely felt this way before I ever even had a human being come out of my body is that it is by far one of the hardest jobs in the whole world. And it's the most underappreciated because it just is taken for granted because that's how we're all here is because we have to parent our parents parented and their parents parented. And it just is what it is. However, I am realizing that The more vulnerable I am and the more honest I am in public, the more my clients trust me to photograph them in hard situations, in frustrating situations, in houses that look like a bomb blew up in the toy chest, 
that it is helping other people out there, especially women who feel all of this pressure to be perfect, that the more I'm open and vulnerable and the more open and vulnerable the pictures are that I share, in a way it's creating this environment that is allowing women to accept that they are just as good the way they are and they don't Mm -hmm. have to pretend to be anything else. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. I think that we have a lot less issues with depression in general, if we were all more honest and open about our struggles, I think we'd work more as a community of support if we weren't pretending that everything is perfect and that we have all of our shit together and we know everything. I think it would be better if we all saw that, you know, sometimes we put our kids to bed without their pajamas on or <laughs> that sometimes you just let them eat cheesecake for lunch. Like yeah. those kinds of things. I think if they weren't so secretive, that maybe as a collective of human beings trying to raise human beings, we'd all feel a little bit more confident. Mm -hmm. So I feel like my work, especially in teaching other photographers to do what I do, the more work we get out there of what really family life looks like, the less pressure as a whole maybe we'll have on each other, on ourselves. Yes? Yes. I love it. Oh, yeah, that gets me fired up. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do this. Also, my friend Jenna Schuldice, who's also a really exquisite, beautiful photographer who I teach with all the time. Uh-huh. We talk a lot about how we're both drawn to really emotional men in in our photographs. Like, uh-huh. I freaking love when a dad dresses up like a princess for their kids, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or yeah. they hug their daughters and kiss their sons, and they're the ones that put them to bed. Mm-hmm. We like to show the emotional dads and the vulnerability of men in general, because I think that's equally a pressure that's been placed on men. And in the, in a talk I just did, I said, I think this started way back when, and it's just like, you know, it's cyclical where especially back in the day, men were raised to be unemotional. Right. Mm -hmm. And it is getting better. I will tell you, I love that about 80% of all the boys that like families that I go into 80% of all the boys have their toenails painted and it's, it it is (laughs) regardless of whatever sexual orientation they will end up with. It's just because kids love color and they like love art and the boys want their toenails painted too. Right. And I'm seeing just a relaxed trend in family rearing. We have a long way to go, but I do think that photography has a way of changing society. Mm -hmm. It can take a while, but I think that is one of the ways it's a powerful tool. Yes. Oh gosh. Okay. So this was not my notes, but like the statement you just made, I wrote like four years ago, I wrote a blog post and it was kind of been the wedding industry and kind of my desire to see more real moments in the wedding photography industry. And that kind of in that post, I kind of framed out that I think that part of the blame for what the wedding industry is and the machine it has become is kind of the photographers. We kind of have driven that by the images we've created. Yes. And we've allowed it to happen. You mean by the epicness that all weddings must be now? Yes. And whether we've just fallen victim to media and what we think sells or the influence also of social media and how we get a lot of attention for it. And so it's like, it pumps up our ego. So... We, it fuels into that even more. Yes. Competition 
plays a part in that, right? Mm-hmm. And also Pinterest, I think, yeah. can be the devil sometimes. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break from the podcast. And I'll let you know, we're going to be at Imaging here in Nashville. It's in the middle of January 2018. It's going to be our first convention that we've done with Musea, and we're extremely excited to be there and to meet many of you. We're working on some plans to um, do a meetup. So if you're at Imaging, you can follow us on Instagram, or there's a link to our Facebook group on our webpage. And we'll be posting details there about the meetup. But uh, if you're going to be at Imaging, let us know. We would love to meet you, swing by, and like to you know just meet all of our listeners. We're going to be also showing off some album prototypes at Imaging. And uh, so we're working on four new products, and we're not going to reveal photos or anything of those until Imaging. So uh, if you're coming by, definitely swing by, check them out. They're going to be really, really great. They're all linen, all handmade album type products. So... So check us out at Imaging, and uh, we'll hope to see you there. All right, back to the show. So I think the next question for me would be is, I feel like a, there's a photographers that I know that are out there that they're nodding their heads to this. They're going to be saying like, amen, like preach it. Yes. <laughs> but then what's going to happen immediately after that is they're going to have this fear thing come up, and they're going to be like, I don't know if I can make money shooting that way because right. most people don't want that. Like they want the idealized family photo i don't know if it's most yeah i don't know if that's the word okay it's just i've been using this analogy a lot lately it's just the only bait we've been using when going fishing Mm -hmm. right yeah a certain type of bait when you go fishing and listen i've maybe caught one fish in my entire life so (laughs) in terms of actual fishing but i do know that particular bait lures and attracts particular fish right i'm not going to put steak on my lure if I'm trying to get goldfish. I'm pretty sure they don't even eat that shit. Their mouths aren't even big enough to eat it. So I think of that in ways of how we put our work out there and we market, right? So Mm -hmm. depending on what bait you put out there, that is going to attract a particular type of client. I can tell you 150,000% sure I would put all the money in my bank account, which is not a lot, but I would put it all on the line to say, that anyone who is interested in shooting this way, if you put the time into learning how to make really good photos, because here's the thing, when it comes to traditional portraiture or even lifestyle, lifestyle I think is a tiny bit different. What I refer to as baby and basket, which Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that at all. There's a formula, right? You learn a formula. So if it's studio portraiture, you learn where to put your lights. If it's these newer newborn sessions where we're placing babies wrapped up in gauze and putting them somewhere, people teach you how to get the babies that sleepy. They can teach you how to put the babies in the positions and the postures, right? And in my opinion, I've only seen like a few people that do it really, really, really well. Everyone else does it great, but they all look the same, right? Even with wedding portraiture and traditional wedding photography, you can learn a formula and do it well and get clients, right? But when it comes to the documentary approach where you have no control over anything other than the settings in your camera and where you stand and when you do and don't press that shutter, that is going to take a lot more practice to get good at because we're not talking about just quote unquote candid 
work. We're talking about if you really want to book clients, you have to have great moments with good light and good composition. Mm -hmm. And it just takes practice. Anyone can learn how to do it, but there's really no formula to it. I can teach someone how to see light. I can teach someone how to meter for light. I can teach people where it might be the more ideal position to stand. But at the end of the day, every decision you make is going to influence the story you're telling. And that's the difference between portraits and storytelling photography. Yes. So anyone that's willing to put in the time and be patient and be graceful with oneself that it takes a bit of time to learn how to be good. If you do that and then you put your work out there in your community and you start making a lot of connections and you start sharing a lot of work, you will get clients. Like I said, in the Outer Banks, the first year I had 10 clients, but because I felt very committed to this approach to portraits, like they're only one and two hour sessions, right? Depending on how big the family is. These are not art families. These are not wealthy families. These are families that were tired of seeing the same thing over and over again and then saw my work and they were like, this is exactly what I want. These are families where they hate being posed, where they sweat before they have a session, where they freak out because they don't know what to wear. These are families that just really loved spending time at the beach with their kids and with their significant others and with their own parents. And they just wanted pictures of that. They didn't want the stress of the shoot. This is a type of photography for every man out there because I don't care if the man is gay or straight. I don't care if they have a lot of money or little money. I don't care if they're old or young. I don't care what culture they're from, what race they are, what religion they are. Men effing hate their pictures being taken. (laughs) They all hate it, especially dads. Every dad that would come to a shoe be like, oh, God. And, like, there's so much stress on them that their kids are like animals. They're just like they've been caged for a while and they're not listening. And their wife's worried about, like, where the hair is, like, in their face. Men hate it. And of all my clients, the ones that I attract the soonest and the quickest are my dads, for sure. Yeah. The men and, my, and the dads, when they learn they don't have to do shit and they can just – be with their families and still get great photos and make their wives happy. That is what I found the most rewarding in terms of client and repeat clients are the dads Mm. for sure. Yes. I had a question about the client experience, which you covered it a lot there, but slightly to dig into it a tiny bit further before we move on. It's just that stress that everybody feels a lot when they're trying, they're they're like, I need to get family photos this year. And they just like the whole experience seems like the worst thing ever. Yes. And then they're like, but this is how you do it. Yes. And just to have somebody else say like, no, you don't have to do it that way. Like it can be pleasurable. Right. It can be fun. It can be fun. What? Imagine that. It can actually be fun. Right. Yeah. Is there like an example of something or a story of like a client, like saying, you know, shooting with you and it was less stressful for them. Yeah. Something they said to you that was like, wow, this is amazing. So I spoke for an icon a couple of years ago, which was a huge honor for me, but they asked if I could have, because it was at WPPI, they said, is there any way that you can shoot on stage? And I was like, uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do that. I mean, we could try to have kids running around and somehow the entire group watching me can run around with me, but I don't think that's going to work. I said, so I'll try and put together a promo video. So I found a family close by locally and I was just like, will you let me come photograph your family 
for the day for free, but my husband's going to take some video of me actually working. And then I did, I just recorded myself doing interview, like interviewing myself to discuss this type of work and how I approach it. And then we interviewed the clients right after they watched the slideshow Mm -hmm. and in the promo video, it's, I think it's on my website. You can hear him talking about it. Like his wife had just had their third baby. I think I photographed them when the baby was only like 12 days old. And she's like, so we're going to have a photographer and a videographer be in the house all day from the time you wake up until we go to bed. And he was like, have you lost your mind? Like, yes, that is exactly what I want is like someone in my face all day long. And like, he really didn't want to do the shoot. And he was the perfect person for it because I needed other people to relate to that. And I needed him to verbalize that. Right. So he talks about that in the video, how he was like, yeah, no, this is not something I want to do, but I love my wife. This is important to her. It's free. We'll just do it. And afterwards he said, I never thought it would be that fun or I would feel that comfortable having a photographer with me all day long. Mm. And the thing is, I really hate that term fly on the wall. I think that's the worst way to shoot anything. And because of my love of pure photojournalism and documentary projects and long-term storytelling with all my research, with all my education, I've learned that in my experience, the best pictures I make come from not making photos. It comes from spending time with my subjects, allowing myself to really insert myself into their life to create environment of trust for them to trust me and to like me. And so I would say I only shoot about on average with a day in the life session, I'm shooting already between 12 and 15 hours. And I'm probably only using my camera about six or seven hours of that. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time is spent just connecting and socializing and spending time and eating and, and laughing with my family recognizing when there's pictures visually and when there aren't and learning that it's just as important not to shoot in this approach as it is to shoot. Does that make sense? Yes. I love that. And I really learned that from foundation workshop. I did it two years in a row and my first year I had to work in a 24 hour bowling alley for three days, which was really awful, (laughs) but I learned a lot technically like how to deal with my technical stuff because the light was awful in there. Mm -hmm. And I really learned how to see light when I didn't think there was light. But the second time I was assigned a homeless shelter and my mentor told me, so we want you to try and find like a family to follow. And maybe there's like a homeless family. I was like, okay. So I get there I called them. I was like, so uh, I don't know if you guys have checked out this homeless shelter, but it's an all men's homeless shelter. (laughs) And there's really no families for me to follow. So then they panicked and they're like, oh God, safety. We don't want you like just following a guy, yeah. you know, cause something might happen to you. And I was like, uh, I'm fine. And so I had three full days that I could shoot. And I spent the first five hours just talking to people until I found my story. Like it took that long and it took that long not to convince someone to let me follow them. That was never my approach. It was, it took me that long to find someone that I connected with that trusted me to tell their story. And that's the difference. And that's how I approach it. I don't want to convince anyone about anything, but if I can make some sort of connection with them, even with my website or my photos, then my job is done in terms of getting access, like initial access. So, and I spent the next 
two full days with Jaime and I shot him from four 30 in the morning until like nine or 10 o'clock at night. And also no women were allowed in the homeless shelter after seven o'clock. It was very rare that they would let women in afterwards, but because I'd also made connections, not just with Jaime, but with the staff, they did let me stay. So I apply all of that, that I learned, like those lessons that I learned to when I'm working with families on a commercial level. Yes. Uh, love that. Yeah. Allowing, uh, Gosh, everybody's in a hurry these days. <laughs> mm-hmm. And allowing stuff to breathe, I think, is yes. really good. Well, there's something to be said for organic relationships that develop, right? Yeah. Like you have to allow yourself time and space for that. Even with a one hour, two hour session, I'm not like going in guns blazing, right? I'm talking to them the whole time. Mm-hmm. I'm getting down to the kids level. The minute they come up to me, I'm engaging in conversation because without their trust, then I cannot make any photos. So I've had to learn how to get that trust really quickly. If it's a one or two hour session. Yeah. One of the things I was looking through your work and your website is, it's kind of like an underlying thing. And I feel like maybe your clients feel this after they get their images, but I feel like there's this kind of this important thing of showing people what they have to be grateful for in their life. Like Mm. I feel like it's the little things that we miss. It's really this time of year with like Thanksgiving and all that, but it's like, we don't really stop and like say this is important or yeah, it's just the little things. And so I feel like you're giving people that gift of like, you're showing them their world and that they often aren't content with Right. I think that comes from the most underappreciated job. Mm. That's where that comes from, stems from what you just said. There's something that my friend Olivia told me years ago, Olivia Bale, who's a really incredible wedding photographer out of Texas. And I've adapted what she said to what I do. And that is that my job is to show people how much they love and how much they are loved. Mm. Like it goes both ways, right? Yeah. Not just how much they give, but how much they receive. There's a photo on my Instagram. I think maybe I talked about it on my last Creative Live. My good friend, Danny Aguilar, who's a really well-known wedding photographer out of Mexico, he got big. I mean, he's really big, especially with Spanish-speaking-based photographers. I mean, he's just huge. And he was traveling a lot, and he was feeling a lot of pressure, and he was gone away from his family all the time. And And it was taking a toll on him. And so I did a half day in the life session for them. And I just made this photo that it's a, he and his wife are making breakfast in the kitchen and his little boy, Isaac at the time, I think was two and a half, maybe they didn't even have their daughter yet. And he just wrapped his arms around Danny's legs and he was beaming. And a lot of us, me included, we don't see their faces when they do that. And sometimes it can be frustrating or we get, you know, a little bit annoyed or what have you, you know, get off me. I, I have to get dinner made. And we brush that off mm. and but we don't see what their face, like their intention. We might just think of it as they need attention, quote unquote. Yeah. And Danny wrote me and talked to me about this afterwards that he said that photo hit him hard mm-hmm. and it made him realize he's like, I knew my son loved me, but I had no idea how much he loved me until I saw that picture. Mm-hmm. And following that, he made huge adjustments to his travel schedule and his work schedule because he realized that he needed to be home more. Yeah. What we as a society forget is that human condition in nature is that we need to be loved and cared for. And 
children just want to be noticed. That's all. Mm -hmm. They don't mean to be assholes, which they are sometimes, (laughs) but they really just want to be loved and noticed and recognized. And I think it is so hard for parents to be trying to juggle work and being good parents and somehow maintaining some sort of social life with their friends and also be there for their partners that it's really like the most impossible juggling act, right? right? And sometimes we just have to stop and remember that all our kids want is for us to notice them and to love them. Mm -hmm. And if anything, if my photos can remind people of that, whether it's their kids or they see me speak or talk or they see my photos and it reminds them of their own families, that's really important, right? We just forget that. Just like you said, everyone's in a rush. That's because we're an instant gratification world now. I don't think we were as much of in a rush before the wave of the internet, to be perfectly honest. You know? Yeah, I agree. This is an awful analogy, talking about kids and then this. But in a talk (laughs) I used to give a long time ago, I equated, because a lot of people don't know what it's like when you shoot a wedding all on film and, like, you have to wait for the negatives to come back. Mm -hmm. And it's like, ah, did I just fuck this up? Like, I have no idea. Like, there were times when my role of film didn't catch, like not with a wedding, but like with other things. And I was always afraid that that was going to happen. And I <laughs> equated it to waiting for the negatives to come back from a wedding you just shot is similar to the anxiety you feel waiting for the results of your STD to come back, as <laughs> STD test to come back. It's pretty much the same. Is my life over, right? Yeah. Like that's like the same thing. Right. Am I going to have to do a lot of damage control, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. Now our photos are right there. And any photographer – or any human being can go invest in a $500 or more camera, maybe even your iPhone and take some photos and you can make a website later that night and say you're in business. Right. And then I don't understand then when people are frustrated that they're not working full time. And I just think that that's crazy expectation to put on yourself you have to give yourself time to grow as a photographer, to grow your network for your community to start referring you to people. It just takes time. A new photography business, I don't even think someone should be worried about working full-time for at least four years. Like if four years have gone by and you're still not being able to live comfortably off of that and you want to, then maybe some serious evaluations need to be done either about your skill or how much you're putting into it. But to expect to be working full-time the minute you put your website out there or, you know, I have people be like, people just don't want this work. And I was like, okay, well, can we have an honest discussion right now? And they'll say yes. And I said, I want you to honestly answer this for me. How many hours a day are you putting into marketing and putting your work out there? And they'll be like, I don't know. And if you can't even answer that, it's not enough. Like it is really hard work and it just takes some time to be good And you do have to make good photos in this genre if you want to get clients. That is number one, where I don't think it's number one with potentially portraits. Even the portraits I make, I don't have to make amazing ones for the Christmas card, right? Just something to put on the Christmas card. But in terms of moment photography, you have to be good. You have to be really good because ultimately your photos are what is going to book you clients. And so you have to make photos that resonate outside of your subjects in the photo. 
it's everyone else has to connect to them. So if you're not making some sort of emotional impact, if your picture is not making some sort of impression, then they're not going to book you. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so you took a workshop with David Ellen Harvey earlier this year, I saw. What did you learn from him? Okay, so this is what I'm going to say about David. For those considering taking a workshop with him, I will advise you to make sure you're ready. Mm. And I've known him for a long time, so I knew I wasn't ready yet to take a workshop with him. Not until now. I'm not saying you need to have the kind of experience I have to take a workshop, but I have had students take workshops with him and be disappointed because I've learned that I can teach two different things. I can teach people how to make pictures, good pictures, but I can also teach people why to make photos. Mm -hmm. David specifically teaches you how to find your own why Mm -hmm. and push you outside of your comfort zone. He is not going to tell you how to make photos. He's not going to tell you how to make photos he makes or how anyone else makes, but he is going to immediately pinpoint by looking at your portfolio, what scares you the most, what your biggest challenges are. And then he just throws things out there to make you, he's almost like a therapist Like he's not going to give you the answer, right? He's just going to give you a lot of questions to help you find the right answer. And one thing that I was struggling with of late, there's a few things. I've now shot over a hundred full day in the life sessions. So I became very comfortable. I had worked for many years on my own point of view and my goals in a shoot, like things I was looking for specifically what interests me, like kids doing weird shit is something that I try and find like funny, humorous moments, moments of chaos, uh, photos that show parents working really hard. Right. And so I felt very comfortable and almost stagnant in the last like year, very comfortable making these pictures. And they're my photos. Like a lot of times people, if I put a photo up, most people will be like, like one of my traditional Kirsten photos, they'll know it's mine at this point. But I was feeling like I wasn't really making photos that other people were going to really grasp onto because I was, but not within the commercial world. It wasn't going anywhere else other than my commercial business or inspiring other photographers to do this type of work. And the first thing he said to me the first night, it was a five day workshop is he looked at my portfolio and we had to give him 10 photos. And he said, so you're not a photographer. And (laughs) you're like, what? No, no. I knew what he was talking about. Yeah. I didn't know how to say it to myself, but I was like, I feel like I know it you're saying. And he goes, these are good pictures and you're making good pictures for your clients, but you're not making photographs yet. Mm. And what he's talking about is creating photographs that transcend outside of my genre, that transcend outside of my clientele or it being commercial work, but really starting to make photos that say something about what it is like to be a child or a parent, or a family, a universal picture. And I knew at that point, that is where I'm ready to go. So I, for the next five days, shot a lot. This was a bookmaking workshop. So I'd already come with about 200 photos that I was considering for my book that I'm working on, Unsupervised, which originally I thought Unsupervised was going to be a collective of pictures of what kids do when parents aren't watching. And what I realized is that's not what my book is. Unsupervised is this greater concept, which we talked about earlier, which is 
what do families really look like when no one is watching? Mm. What really is it like to be a child or to be a parent or to be a family when there's no pressure from the outside world of what people are expecting of you or what the judgments are because everyone's got an opinion about how you raise your kids, including me, when no one else is watching, what does that look like? And how can that help better the understanding of family and parenthood and childhood also help people feel better about their own families And so that is where my work is going now. And I've been shooting for myself in these shoots for a while, but not like I do now. I've gotten to a point now where my clients are hiring me, not because I do this. And that was the beauty of like having a lot of people grasp onto this genre and want to learn and do this all over the world. People are like, oh God, now like everyone's doing them cursed. And I'm like, yep. And that is so much better for me. It is better for me because I am a photographer. I'm not in this for business. Like I'm in this as an artist, right? Photography as an art. And now I know that people aren't hiring me just because I'm the only one that does it. Now I know people are hiring me because they want to see how I see their family, how I see their family, not how anyone else sees it, but they're really hiring me for my point of view. Yes. So now there's a lot of freedom for me because I am only making photos for me. It's interesting. I went from making like 10, I would come home with like 10,000 frames from a shoot. And also part of that is I was still working out how to predict behavior and how to identify what it is that I really find interesting. But I went from a few years ago shooting, coming home with 10,000 to edit through to I'm only shooting 40, like between 4,500 and 6,500, depending on how many kids there are and how active it was during the day. And it's really fascinating to me how much smaller collection I deliver as well and how much better I feel about the photos I'm giving them. So there's a lot more artfulness now in my work and there's a lot more risk. I'm taking more risk than I ever have technically and compositionally. And the other thing he said was, so then we have to put all the, if you're working on a book, then he needs us to go through the process he goes through when he does a book as many do. And that is that you need to print the pictures being considered for whatever project or what have you or story or essay. And you got to put them on the wall and step back because we don't really do that. And I pinned up my 200 before I left for the night And I stepped back and these are 200 that I was considering for the book that I consider my favorite or the best of what I've shot in the last like 10 years of shooting families. And I was like, all these are the fucking same. (laughs) And I had never seen it before. They were all perfectly executed, but pretty much from the same distance from my subjects Mm -hmm. and really great moments, but nothing felt strong. And I didn't say anything. I just left. And in the morning, David's like, all right, we're all going in the other room. We got to look at Kirsten stuff. And David had his book publisher there, an editor, Diego from Italy, and a couple of other people. There was a guy that was working on a book as well. And so apparently they stayed up for like three hours looking at all my pictures. And he said, I think you do this better than anyone I've ever seen ever. And he's like, and every one of your pictures is so perfect and all the same. And I was like, I know I never thought that before until I pinned them all on the wall and stepped back. Yeah. 
I am surprised out of 200, he kept like 23 that he felt were good as a starter for the book. So I like made a photograph of the ones that he selected so that I remembered. And it's not necessarily that those will be the only ones that go in, but I trust his judgment. He's put out a lot of books, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give away everything I learned because I think that when people are ready, they should learn from him, right? I'm just regurgitating things he's told me. But he said, this is a thing with bookmaking. This is not a portfolio. We are not showing your best work. Sometimes the very best photos have to get cut to have a really strong narrative. Mm. And some of the weaker ones that you would never consider then gain strength within the narrative. So I'm now looking at work from like 10 years ago that I never would have even considered that now I'm like, oh, this kind of fits my story. So I'm shooting new stuff for it. I'm going back and revisiting old stuff and I'm feeling much better about the direction that my book is going. That's fantastic. I totally relate just as a quick thing is like I have a BFA in photography Uh and when I was in college, that's how we did critiques. So for, you know, four years, every three weeks or whatever, we would all come in and pin our photographs onto the wall and then we would just sit there for three hours and go through everybody's photos and talk about it. Yeah. And for me, that was normal for four years. But it's crazy for me to think like most of the photographers that that have picked up a camera since like 2005 or something, if they have not gone to a school that forced them to do that, they've never experienced that. Mm -hmm. And it's like how mind blowing that can be. Yeah. I can't get over how many people have never had a critique. So I went to art school, right? Like I never mentioned that. I went to an art high school. So I started doing critique in high school, like just getting your shit ripped apart. And there's something a little different about like (laughs) something you build with your hands and like, this is shit. You're like, well, okay, that's a part of me that just died on the inside. But, (laughs) right. But if you haven't had critique, you are not going to get better. Like you just aren't. Yeah. It is impossible. You cannot create just within your own headspace. Like you have to have outside reactions or people that are not personally related to the act of making the pictures to help you say, this is not working as a photo. And by taking it out, your portfolio is much better, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think critique is really important and the pinning the stuff on the wall. So Greg and I, my husband and I, he's a street photographer. He just got ready for a show and we pinned everything on the walls. And then I started, you know, we like, match photos together and step back and see what works in the collective. And a few of his favorites, I was like, Nope, they're out. And he was like, really? And he like tried to fight for him. And I'm like, Nope, they're out. And then after a while he was like, you're right. This, the fluidity of this show, the way that each photograph complements and introduces the next one, it doesn't work with this photo or this photo. So it's really great. And it is great. I will say this is the first time I had ever dated or been with had a partner that was a photographer. I always something in the arts, usually musicians, which probably something to have to do with my father, but (laughs) having a photographer as a partner is really nice because I also trust his judgment. So many times I'll be like, what do you think? And if he says, I think that's kind of crap, I'll say, I think you're right. (laughs) I also don't have a lot of personal connections, personal attachment to my work. Mm. I learned that a long time ago with tons and tons of critique to just not, I don't have any personal attachment to it. And I always say with my students, like, if we have to let one go, I'm like, okay, we're just going to have this little funeral for it. We'll have a moment of silence. And now it is dead to us and we will just bury it forever. Yeah. It's a, it's a bad analogy. It's like killing your kids or so. It's like, it's like, I feel like yeah. this is like my yeah. baby. And you're like, no. Yeah. 
but it's, it's really not. not. It's just a picture. It's just a Let fucking picture. It's yeah. all it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's one thing that's sort of lacking in the industry is like really good critiques because I think people that do get critiques are getting critiques from people that don't know how to critique also. Correct. And, and it just snowballs into bad things. There's very few things I do well on this planet. One of them is I'm a pretty good cook. <laughs> Second is I'm a really good parallel parker. <laughs> and third is I feel like I'm very good at giving critique. Mm-hmm. And it's only because I've learned from really good critiquers. That's all. Because yeah. I do believe there's a good way, like an effective way to give critique and then just an ego-driven shitty way to give critique. Yeah. Or people that just have no idea what they're talking about and shouldn't be critiquing at all. So. Agreed. All right. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, so talk to me about the documentary family awards. Oh and yeah. What that is. So that's really exciting for me because I will say I find when my students succeed or when they make really good photos or they, you know, start booking a lot of work that makes me the most excited. I like feel more successful with their success than I do my own. Mm -hmm. And that's like, honest to God, I had been wanting to do this DFA for about, I think it's been five or six years. I've been talking about it. I've been talking about it with a lot of people for a long time. And I just didn't know when the time was right to do it. And we decided it was now I asked Jenna and Tristan to come on board with me. So it's the three of us. And so what we've done, you're familiar with fearless awards, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So we looked at fearless awards. We looked at the ISPWP. We looked at the WPGA. We looked at WPPI. We looked at world press awards. We looked at all sorts of even the Pulitzers. Like we looked at how are all of these competitions structured. What do we feel works best? What do we feel is lacking? Right? So lens culture has this, they have a few competitions a year and they'd say, sorry, lens culture, but I have to call you out on this. They say (laughs) that no matter what, you'll get a critique of your photos, right? If you enter the competition, okay, well, I, it's been two years for one comp and I've never received a critique for either of my sets that I submitted. However, Greg got uh, feedback on one of the sets he submitted last year, but they're not really good about doing that. So they probably just shouldn't promise that. But the idea of having some sort of feedback is really good. Right. So we took a little of that fearless awards, just in general, uh, you know, showing exemplary photography. And we saw the excitement that that builds around the industry. So we liked that. Uh, we liked ISPWP's structure in terms of having categories because some photo, like the thing with fearless is it's just a collection of like certain photos. Right. But Jenna and I found even just with judging this first round that some photos work in categories and are award winners. And then maybe against the whole, they aren't as strong. Right. So we structured it to have categories. But the thing that we found that's lacking in general or what can be hurtful or harmful in competitions in general is that people weigh their whole skill, like all their confidence on competition, which we hate. Like we want to celebrate great work being made. We want to elevate the genre. We want more and more of this work out there virally, basically, so that it goes faster than the wedding trend where just more and more families out there in the world see this as an alternative to 
family photography, the traditional family portrait. And so we knew there had to be an educational or feedback aspect to it. So how are we able to provide that by doing the final judging live and not just in, out, in, out, in, in, out, but really discussing because that is, I told you, like, even when Jen and I teach together, it's critique based and not critiquing everything, but really discussing out loud, why does this one work for me? Why does this one work for Jenna? How do we come to a place of agreement on it? And we've decided now that we'll probably always have a guest for the third, because there were a couple of times where we just didn't agree. And then one of us had to concede, but at least being transparent about how we get to the winners so that there is no question. Right. And so even if you don't agree with our decision, at least you know what it is and you're not left wondering how these photos were chosen. I love it. So yeah, we have four judges initially that break down the entire collection to their favorites, then they're all put together. And then Jenna and I narrow it down from there. And I have to be honest, there were some where we were really shocked that got in. And then others were, I wonder, were there others that Jenna and I would have chosen that didn't even make it in from any of the judges? Who knows? But everyone has a different perspective. So that's why we like to have a lot of different people giving us their choices. So we're really excited for where it goes from here. We're considering pulling like 20 photos that didn't even make it from the first cut and doing pop-up critiques, like random, just so that people that enter, it's not about if it wins or loses, if it is chosen, it's celebrated, right? Your work is celebrated and it's a great picture. doesn't mean that if it didn't make it in, that it's not a great photo and that people are still getting something from it, right? Because at the end of the day, we'd like it to be more educational. So that's how the DFA was, the structure of it came to be. Fantastic. And then what's the website? Where do people go if they're interested? Uh, believe is a documentaryfamilyawards.com. Yeah, it's a documentaryfamilyawards.com. And we're getting ready to announce our uh, second contest opening up soon. So Okay, cool. And then just for you, if somebody listens to this and like, ah, I really want to learn from her, where can people find you at? Where do you want to point them to? So if you want to see my work, it's kirstenlewisphoto.com and it's K-I-R-S-T-E-N, not K-R-I, as I've gotten my whole life. <laughs> and then there's kirstenlewiseducation.com. And I will say that these last two years have been the hardest two years of my entire life because I personally support our entire family. I have, and I have struggled with that term work life balance. And so I am making changes because I do love teaching and I don't want to give it up altogether, but I realize that I just can't be doing everything that I'm doing right now. So what I'm doing is I'm actually building a library or a school and I'm basically recording and providing literature for every question I've ever been asked about what I do. So eventually it's just going to be available passively. So people can just take classes passively, learn from me with videos and stuff, but not necessarily have to work with me one-on-one. I have some stuff, some one-on-one available for 2018, but it's limited, but they can go to kirstenlewiseducation.com. Perfect. Thank you. Gosh, you're amazing. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. I think what you're doing is very important in the industry. So thank you. I uh, just want to cheer you on and just keep going. How did you guys find me anyways? I'm curious. Well, I'm always looking for amazing people that are doing amazing things for the podcast. And I love what you do. Oh, so great. I don't even remember where I initially found you. I mean, it was several month earlier this like the summer i'm always curious to be honest because i'm always surprised that anyone cares about what i have to say or the photos that that i make i'm just a normal person who like 
makes really bad decisions a lot of the time or like <laughs> I'm like the antithesis of the perfect mom. I say so when I hear things I'm like, "Listen, my kid ate one of my contacts about a month ago." Like <laughs> And she rolled out of bed but, wearing her oh, brace because she used to have uh, hip dysplasia. And yeah. she, she co-sleeps and she totally rolled out of bed at a hotel, like a very high bed. And that happened while I was wearing my best mom ever t-shirt, like that kind of stuff. Right. Like I, like, and I'm just open about, you know, how imperfect I am. Yeah. So I never understood this whole celebrity in the wedding industry. People right. do know me, but like, I'm just a normal person. So I'm always curious how people hear about me or my work. So Yeah, I'm always looking for people that are doing the honest stuff that, A, will make the photo industry better because I think there's a lot of noise out there that is not necessarily good. And kind of educating people on like photography is like a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Like it's something you just do, whether you're getting paid or not. Like it's right. it's in your core as a person. Like that's how I am related to it. And so I think that's how the masters were like that they just it's true that's how david is it's a photographic life yeah he's always teaching and i'm always teaching him yeah. if i could i'd just do it for free but i have to you know support my family so yeah and i just feel like celebrating photographs that make other people a better human being is important and that there's not a lot of that there's not enough of that out there it's like let's all give everybody a anxiety complex <laughs> i don't want to celebrate those photos as much like, <laughs> let's all have deeper discussions than how amazing your ad profit is <laughs> I have to admit, like, so I just got back from the Fearless Conference. It was a really wonderful conference. They had incredible speakers this year. And my friend and past student, I won't even let her work with me anymore. She, like, tries to give me money and I give it back. But Nikki Boone, are you familiar with Nikki's work? I'm not. No. Oh, you should look her work up. She has a photo essay going of her kids uh, living fairly in New Zealand. Beautiful. Oh, So she gave her talk and... She just has the most extensive portfolio of incredible photos. Like Jenna and I were sitting there and we're like, even collectively together, we don't have this many great photos. And afterwards I was like, so I feel like real shit about my work. (laughs) (laughs) So there's also the unintentional, right? Like that's the last thing she want to do is make me feel like shit about my work. Yeah, That's hilarious. Uh, Yeah. It was a really great conference, by the way. I got to see Lawrence Jackson. Are you familiar with him? No. He uh, photographed with Pete Souza, the the president uh, for Obama for eight years, and he was really awesome. So, wow. Okay. Yeah, I know Pete, but I didn't. I don't know the other. So Lawrence, I think, is one of the only black photographers to ever shoot in the White House. Huh. Okay. He's really good. So. Very cool. Okay, I'll have to check him out. Yeah, check him out. Cool. Well, thanks. All right, thanks so much for listening to this episode with Kirsten Lewis. Make sure to check out her work. You can check out her website at kirstenlewisphoto.com. You can also follow her on Instagram at Kirsten L. Photog. Follow her there. She's amazing. Uh, just really thank her for coming on. She's crazy busy, and it was great for her to take the time out of her <laughs> schedule to chat. Thanks also to James Sweeting for helping edit this podcast. And thanks to all of our Patreon supporters at uh, patreon.com slash musea. We will see you in two weeks. All right, bye.